And good morning and welcome to our listeners in Toronto and Ottawa and places beyond. 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto or anywhere across the country if you've downloaded the Radio Player Canada app or you could do that and be listening on your device of choice by typing in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM and as I say... Uh, You can listen on the Radio Player Canada app and listen on your device of choice across the country. Today on the show, we have uh, two guests. My first guest is the 2020 North American Indigenous Games CEO, Kevin Sandy. We're going to welcome him to the show momentarily, but I'd also like to tell you at the bottom of the hour, our second guest is Gretchen Roach. She is a physician and she's going to give me a physical. No, she actually is not going to give me a physical, but she is a physician. She's going to be talking to us about her book, Deep Water Dream. And it's quite an interesting book, I can tell you, about her life experiences, her time in the North with a Cree community, and other places around the world. Fascinating book. Uh, It will be very interesting. Right now, I would like to welcome to the show Kevin Sandy, who is on the line from the East Coast. Morning, Kevin. Hey, Scano, David. Scano, and uh, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. It's a beautiful day over here on the East Coast, finally. We have some actually warm, sunny weather yeah, leading up to the Memorial Cup, actually, which is coming Sunday. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And uh, as you were saying, you're, you're sitting there looking out at the bay. Yeah, yeah. We just actually got through a, a series of interviews for uh, some sport managers, venue managers, our next, our next wave of... Of hiring for the uh, 2020 North American Indigenous Games mm. yeah, this morning. And uh, when when is that coming up, and where is it going to take place? It's actually coming up. It's probably I, I always say a year out, and it's basically uh, probably <laughs> 13 months away. But uh, July 12th to the 19th, 2020, is being held in uh, the Big Mock Hall. This area, Chibuktuk, actually, it's, uh, it means the the great the great harbor, and uh, people know it as Halifax. And also, it's being held in the uh, Millbrook First Nation, which I they're really excited and jacked up about the event, which uh, they'll be hosting the uh, 3D archery. So we'll have over 5,000 participants from across uh, Turtle Island who will be competing in uh, 17 different sports, two, two demo sports, uh, which are new, are rugby and uh, beach volleyball. So it's really a wonderful event to uh, share. Uh, I think our, our brand is really friends made, games played, and culture shared. And really, that's that's really what the game's all about. It's a tremendous cultural celebration as well as a magnificent sporting event and it's the it'll be the largest event ever in atlantic canada history much uh much bigger than the uh canada games without the robust budget that they get my mm. might add. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah of course you have to add that of course uh well that's, yeah, that's fa- reality sometimes yeah that's uh fascinating and congratulations and of course congratulations as uh being uh appointed to the ceo position for that I can imagine. Oh, it's, thank you. Yeah, it, I imagine it's a big challenge. It is. Yeah, it's funny as 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 we talked as we talked to some of the prospective uh, candidates for some of the positions. That's one of the questions they ask us. Actually, is uh, what do you what do you see as the fundamental challenge? Aside from the resourcing part, that's always just a fiscal reality for us. I said, but the biggest thing for us is uh, in and around. We have five thousand individuals coming to this area, as well as a. Uh, Friends, family, visitors, uh, 13 Mi'kmaq communities, urban indigenous community, a broader Nova Scotia and Halifax Dartmouth community, logistics becomes uh, glaringly important for us. And, and when I talk logistics, I, I'm, I'm talking really around the area of uh, what's our what's our action plan, game plan for not only accommodations, but mm-hmm. also uh, 
transportation when uh, there's only basically one way a couple of ways in here in terms of uh in terms of travel so most most individuals uh let's say will be coming uh via air through uh, halifax stanfield airport then for the ones who are coming by a bus again it's it's a it's a long arduous trip actually to the to the east coast and it's and i know the national aboriginal hockey championships got done in uh yukon and so they had team Mi'kmaq from here travel out there and so it took them a whole day of traveling just to get there so that logistic piece is really critical for us as well as uh connecting with the communities like connecting not only with the Mi'kmaq community but the broader business community here in Halifax and 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 I think not only that but within the context of the of the urban community as well and making sure that that the communities all feel that they're involved they're engaged in this beautiful wonderful celebration so so that in itself it becomes a becomes a We'll say a communications challenge, and I'm actually mm-hmm. glad I'm on the line because, to me, this is all part and parcel of, of what the media is all about. Like the media has changed, communications has changed so much in the in the we'll say the early days of the runners who would travel from village to village. Now it's basically point, shoot, click. All of a sudden, instant, <laughs> we can be we can be all over the world. We can be all over the world, and uh, and and I guess say that that's some of some of the communication challenges that we're going to have and experience as well. But it's, it's all going to be wonderful. Mm. Uh, did I hear you say earlier 3D archery? Yes, yes, yeah. That's actually uh, that was held actually in the 2017 games. Actually, I believe it was held uh, closer to our community on Six Nations mm-hmm. near near Ancaster. But it's not a new event. It's something I said that the Middlebrook First Nation uh, community is really excited and jacked up about, and uh, their the hospitality will kind of be like I think I liken it to when we held the 2017 games and, and we did the culture and, uh, mm-hmm. and the lacrosse component in our community. And that's how Melbrook is really excited about, excited about uh, being involved in the games as well. And they're, they're not the closest uh, community to us. They're about like from Toronto, the six nations about an hour away. But mm-hmm. I think that's the beauty of the games is that it, it involves a number of the, we're in Mi'kmaq, Mi'kmaq territory out here. So mm-hmm. it's important for us to be connected with, within that community the, the, the community structure and and what does 3d archery uh, consist of how does it how is it different than 2d or just regular archery competitions? Uh, yeah they actually have targets like you say they have they have the hash you'll say say they have the targets actually they have a course that's right in right right in there like there's a like we'll say the uh compound bowls traditional bowls but also that's uh they actually have physical targets so uh something that say replic- replicates say if there's a there's a bear in the woods and mm. so on, or a bear in the bush, and uh, there's actually a physical target that actually has the rings centered around, and actually that's what they're shooting, right. shooting, shooting, shooting toward, right? right. And so right. it can be a number of different, uh, well, as I, as we say in, in my, as in our language, like the all the animals, right, that are in the bush. So, yeah. mm-hmm. And you mentioned the event coming up on the weekend. What can you tell us about that? How is that? How is that part and parcel of leading up to these games? For what event? Didn't you mention an event coming up or one that just passed? Uh, we've had a number. I know a number of different events, but but I know like the, the, maybe the event that you're talking about is is the Memorial Cup. Is that yeah. the one you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, or no? mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yep. Well, yeah. That's that. That's the obviously uh, the National Major Junior Hockey Championship. So we we actually had a presence there as well in terms of uh, getting out there and creating more of awareness of. Uh, the North American Indigenous Games, obviously, hockey is, is huge here, and we're having a national championship here actually uh, kind of lends to its, its experience. I know the uh, 
Halifax Thunderbirds across team. They have a big fan zone actually down at the games as well. So we, we're trying to be involved and be out there as much as we can in order to promote our games as well, dovetail with some of the events that I actually uh, – they're doing what having a, us having a presence within the within the broader kind of business community as well doing so doing the hospitality like in the in the local uh, corporate skybox we actually took a bunch of uh, corporate potential corporate partners out actually on sunday to the game when guelph played uh halifax so and it's a huge 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 event here and and i think it draws like over close to one hundred and fifty thousand individuals now with halifax being in the in the final it just generates a wave, a wave of excitement in, in the local community, not only to say within the broader Nova Scotia community, but also within the Mi'kmaq community because they're hockey players. And, mm-hmm. and that's, I think that's important. And, the, and actually, they were, I, I mean, if you look at their their history and their beautiful way of life, like you say, they were they were actually involved in the formation of the of the Mi'kmaq hockey sticks way back, way mm-hmm. back in the day. They were actually one of the first manufacturers of hockey sticks. Mm-hmm. And so there's a really strong connection to that and you and you talk to some of the uh elders within their community as well they're they're very proud of that which they should be just like we have our traditional games like you say and and i think it's just it just really speaks volumes of uh of the knowledge that they've had they were they were some of the best well-known wooden stick hockey makers uh crafts craftsmen artisans actually in the world and and that's and they, i know it's shut down now i said but they're still individuals in the big Ma community who are still making those type of sticks yeah wow very cool um so yeah. kevin a lot of people may not be familiar with the north american indigenous games and uh, i know they've been around for a while i remember covering a game uh, out on in in on vancouver island one year walking in with the uh with with all the athletes from six nations and it was extremely exciting and um and, and it is a, a very very big event, as you mentioned, and takes a lot of, of putting it together. But uh, can you explain a little bit of, of the background of, of, of the games in, in terms of, you know, normally, and I'm not sure if this still happens, but they used to go back and forth between the United States and Canada. The city would, would each, uh, I guess, other year take on a, that hosting those games. Yeah, no, yeah, I can, I can, I can explain that. I, uh, the North American Ashley Indigenous Games Council is the governing body. They're comprised of uh, 26 representatives from 26 regions across uh, North America. The 13 regions, we'll say, provinces and territorial regions up here in Canada, but also they have they've broken it down in terms of the U.S. to uh, 13 uh, geographical regions as well, and that's who comprise, we'll say, the uh, the board kind of structure and, and the structure that we, we that they put in place in terms of the the hosting standards agreement, but the games are really born out of a dream and vision. Um, I know uh, Dr. Uh, Willie Littlechild and Charles Wood way back in the well, we'll say way back in the seventies. Games have been played, have been, as you know, have been played in our communities for for thousands and thousands of years. Really, and to me, it's just a natural. It's just these games have been a natural extension, I think, of uh, of what of what we've always done. We've uh, the games that we played has always brought our people together in the spirit of our way of life or songs or ceremonies or dances or culture and sport just connects people connects communities and really that's what the game and the celebration is really is, is all about and uh, i think in a broader scheme of things it it actually uh lends lends itself very well to uh the beauty and magnific- magnificence actually of the indigenous people and the non-indigenous people of uh of canada and the u.s and it's a really a way for us to uh communicate collaborate together in the spirit of cooperation because i think the games is just it's just more much more than the games it's it's a 
beautiful, wonderful, wonderful celebration of dance, artistry, song, music, games, art, and teachings, as well as the uh, the friendly sport competition that that goes along. And, and then we're in, and then it's really it's inclusive as well. I think there's a, there's a broader perception that it's just kind of indigenous focused only, but it's not that way at all. And I think that's the message that we're trying to send send out there when we when the Mi'kmaq say Jalasi, it means welcome. Like you say, mm-hmm. welcome to the Mi'kmaq territory, and that's what we're extending. We're utilizing. They're the language of the of the Mi'kmaq people to invite people to, and they, and they call it the Mawiyami, which is a which is this gathering of people, and really this this area that's called Chibuktuk, people now know it as Halifax, was the gathering place for uh for the for the Mi'kmaq people, and it's wonderful that the games are actually going to be here, and I think that's really what embodies the spirit of the games is really is really that connection to the to the land and in the air and in the water, like you say, and that's really the tapestry of this of this mix of an event. Really, it involves it involves and includes everybody, and that's really there's a, like a vibrant there's such a vibrant like uh, Acadian community, Gaelic, uh, African Canadian community here as well, and then and there's there's and that's who we want involved in this celebration. We want everybody involved in terms of uh in terms of the reach and outreach and working together because the games, as you know, look, you look at a little NHL that's held in Mississauga every, every mm-hmm. year, uh, basically sells out the uh, city of uh, Mississauga. And, and it's the same here. Uh, basically all the, uh, the accommodations will be held like through SMU and Dow and colleges, universities, some of the local downtown, downtown hotel properties, but the socioeconomic impact for the restaurateurs, the, Food industry, accommodation partners, hotel partners, visit attractions that are down here. It's just a beautiful. As we're talking, when we're looking at the harbor and seeing all the boats here, because it really all the excitement starts now. Like in terms of that made kind of, and in the cycle of the games are obviously in July, and it's and it's just going to be packed here. And I and I want people to feel that energy because that's really what our games are all about and as you know david like say with our songs or dances the games that we play it's all about that energy and that's really what we want the people to experience so that's really what embodies the games is that is that energy and is that spirit that's connected to to what we do mm. and now we're, now we're for that uh, so kevin just before we move on to because uh, i'd love to talk about lacrosse with you um and and a couple that's of other I. things but but uh <laughs> Uh, can you briefly go over the categories of of what uh, what the games encompass in terms of uh, you know what kind of things are represented? Yeah, I, I can I can I can actually touch on that. Like you say, in terms in terms of like we'll say the the program. As I look at the program, we're going to have a, like a beautiful uh, a beautiful welcoming uh, ceremony. Uh, the opening ceremonies that will that will be comprised of actually of a athletes uh parade that'll start from uh the Halifax Commons and 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 uh, the the celebration we'll say in the program to honor all of the visitors and athletes and partners involved in the in the planning and organization execution again will happen at Scotia Bank Center. It actually holds around eleven thousand people. So that's actually how we're gonna do that. And uh there'll also be a magnificent a, a cultural program that'll be held at the uh, Halifax Commons area. This is basically a five minute walk from uh downtown uh downtown Halifax, kind of uh, adjacent to uh the Citadel Hill and uh that's gonna be comprised of a, a vibrant a mix so we'll say of a mix of song, music, dance, interactive cultural celebrations. Some of our vendor partners will be out there. There'll be 
music. There will be uh, sport demos, and we look to involve some of the local sporting teams like the Halifax Thunderbirds, the Halifax Wanderers, the uh, oh geez, the Halifax Hurricanes. There's just so many, so many different areas that we can morph morph ourselves into, and I think that's something that we're looking at doing is making sure that that we have everybody involved, not only from the sporting side of things they said from the athletics the badminton the baseball it's the canoe kayaking that will be held at major events facilities it's 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 just other areas that we have that will actually uh lend itself like you say the the uh archery the um beach volleyball the rugby there's just an enormous amount of activity that will happen and really we well i think what the bid committee did is is what's can might have been different in past games that they've kind of clustered some of the programming. So, so for example, say where the uh, lacrosse competition will be held at the RBC Center, there actually will be uh, rugby going on next door as well as beach volleyball that's adjacent. So it's a more of a kind of a clustered based approach. Well, then you'll feel the energy there because then the teams can actually go back and support and cheer for cheer for. Uh, their specific uh, region that's playing in uh, Canada Game Center will host volleyball, then it's up the hill, actually just a walk away is uh, the soccer center. And, and so that's kind of really what we're looking at doing. And uh, it's a combination of, we'll say, cultural programming, and sporting programming, and really just in the spirit of cooperation and working together. So it's just mm. it's just going to be a beautiful, magnificent event. Nice. So listen, um, you know, there's, when we talk about uh, sports, you mentioned lacrosse. Of course, you've been, uh, you've been involved with lacrosse on Six Nations for, for a long time. And I've been, <laughs> I've been trying to explain uh, to people as much as I can about, you know, people think of, of, of lacrosse as Canada's summer, you know, sport, national summer sport. And, and I'm going, yeah, but y- y- what do you really know about, about lacrosse? What do you really know about the history of lacrosse, where it came from? How it got started, who, who originated it, and and I've been trying to share that story with people a little bit because it's such a, a wonderful, wonderful history. Uh, how it came about, why it came about, what its purposes were, and how it was played originally. So I'm I'm hoping that you might be able to share some of that with us. Yeah, I I, I can I can do do that. I think that's like something that's how, that we we've done and been involved in for a number of years. And I think a lot of people really don't understand that the that the origins of the games actually comes from uh, comes from our from our creation story. And, and that's and that's actually part and parcel of the uh, the beauty I think of of the games. It's a traditional uh, stickball game that was played uh, by Segway Diso and his brother. And actually, when they played it in our oral traditions and teachings they were playing it they were playing it uh to to settle a dispute and at that particular point in time they were actually trying to trying to see who would rule the world and uh i'd say good mind versus bad mind and they say there's always good and there's always good and bad in, in the world this is what the big thing about it is the game it was it was a connection point i think it's a connection point between between people and communities and i think that's something you said that in our in our way of life in our old traditions it has it has evolved over the years so it has become a healing game and i think a lot of people really don't understand that it's still being played within our communities within a lot of Haudenosaunee communities we we play it and and, and we play it within our Ganoses, our longhouse i say every every spring to honor the return of the of the thunders and and, and and that's that's the whole another spiritual aspect to the game as well. It's all played with wooden sticks, like you say. And uh, I know the French kind of have 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 the the French people have been sort of like 
gave gave us the kind of the name of of lacrosse, but even in in not only in our language, I could say uh, then uh, then you'll have another another version of a Coast Salish game. Then out here, the Mi'kmaq have a very kind of similar kind of stickball game. Yeah, in Ishnabi, who have their game of a bagataway as well. Then there's so many different nations, like say across Turtle Island. Who, who've had these stickball games and that, and that's, and I think that's something that, that we try to uh, educate people on because they really don't know. They always see it as, as, as a sport, right. But for mm-hmm. us, it's always been part of a way of life. It's all been it's part of our teachings. It's part, it's been part of our, part of our ceremonies. It's still part of our ceremonies. It's still, it's still part of a, it's still part of a, of the beauty of our, of our way of life. But I think that's something that we try to make sure that people understand and, and and they feel connected to it because i think that's something i said that's kind of gone missing over the years is that people really don't truly understand the beauty and the magnificence of 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 the runners and of the men who play the game and now the women who play who are playing the game it's not obviously the ceremonial game but the women who who have the opportunity to uh to play to play this beautiful game and and go on and uh Go on and participate in, uh, say, CIS level, which has uh, an MCLA level in uh, D1, D2, D3. Like all these individuals who are having, who are who are doing magnificent, wonderful. Well, obviously, our community is matrilineal, and so. But the big thing about it is the women now have accessibility to play and, and participate in this game. Where in where in the past it really has not happened that way. It was more of a of a male well, male centric. We'll say. Uh, sport for us and 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 i think that's like something that's that you see even at the last the last um games that we held in in six nations for nag 2017 the final game between eastern door and the north and and ontario at the time which is comprised mainly like i say a lot of uh haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe players uh and uh, who are on that team it was electric in that arena just to feel just to feel the energy and actually I remember getting receiving receiving messages uh on phone and via social media from friends and family saying, Oh my gosh, I wish I was there because it was like two thousand people in that arena <laughs> for the final girls game. I think it had more excitement and passion and energy than the than the than the than the boys game and that's I was there. I seen it, I witnessed it and that to me that's really how the Sport has has transcended, like I say, from our traditional stick ball game now to the contemporary version. But it just it still has that spiritual connection to who we are. Because again, the 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 game the the game has evolved from a deer skin ball now to we'll say uh we'll say people call it the Indian rubber ball sort of sort of kind of contemporary. But it's all contemporary, right? But the sticks have changed. But again, you're still seeing you're still seeing. Our wonderful, beautiful stick makers uh, down down Six Nations and Aquasusni and Onondaga, Alfie Jocks, the Mitchell brothers, like the Henhawks, the Hills. There's so many still. The Squires used to make them as well. And there's so many. That's to me the beauty of the game because it's still connected, right? It comes from the strongest, one of the strongest trees around, the hickory stick, which is connected to Owenza Day, our mother of the earth, and and that's and that's really the the be the beauty of it all you don't really see too many kids actually in youth playing with wooden sticks anymore and and, and if they do they 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 take on more of a, what i see a, a defensive kind of role in the goalies and uh but i i remember watching actually um when i was out west actually when i was living out west and well, i think the last individual i really seen kind of utilize one was uh 
was uh, in, the, in the President's Cup. I remember uh, that wasn't uh, Jeremy. Jeremy Thompson, actually, one of the Thompson brothers, utilized it. He was the President's Cup MVP and for the whole tournament. He used the wooden stick. You don't hardly see that anymore, right? And, uh, but I know there's guys even down home on Six Nations like Daniel Bohenhock. He played for uh, he played for the Rebels. The one he he's a stick maker now. Like you mm. said, he's 24, 25, and that's all he does. Yeah, that's all he plays with. And that's all he'll ever play with is, is the wooden stick, and, and that's really. And, and and he makes his own stick. He's probably the, one of the only few individuals that I know in the world who makes and plays with his own wooden stick. Like, how, how wonderful of a story is that? Yeah. Kevin, we, had a, we have to pause there for a moment. Don't go away. We're going to want to come back and talk more about lacrosse. And specifically, if we can, uh, and I appreciate what you were saying there. We have to take this pause. I'd like to, to touch a little bit more on the, the name The Creator's Game, why it's The Creator's Game, and also why it also had the name of The Little Brother of War, if that's okay with you. For sure. Okay, so we're going to take this pause. We'll come back and talk more with Kevin Sandy right after this on Element FM. And we are back on Moment of Truth and Element FM, and I am speaking with Kevin Sandy. He is the CEO of the North American Indigenous Games for 2020. He's on the phone from uh, Halifax, and we've been talking about the North American Indigenous Games. And uh, just before the break, we were talking about the game of lacrosse, which uh, was... Uh, a gift, uh, basically a game that came to the people of Six Nations, and Kevin has been talking a little bit, a little bit about that and uh, some of the history around the game in terms of how it was played, how it originated, and uh, how it is tied to ceremony in the Six Nations community. And the wooden stick, of course, a, a very important important part of that. Kevin, I, I understand that Kevin, uh, the wooden stick is is not not being played with at the professional level, though. Is that correct or? Yeah, it's 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 not it's not being played at professional level. You'll see it in the major series lacrosse where the Chiefs and the Lakers play in, as well as the W W L A out west. But that's really uh, then you'll see it in in in, in some aspects of uh, minor lacrosse throughout, throughout. We'll say Turtle Island, Canada, and U.S. We'll say predominantly, but it's not it's not played at the professional level because they have all their brand companies to provide some mm-hmm. resources into into the league and actually it's it's not actually played in it, played in the NLL or even the MLL or even this new professional league that Paul Rabel has just started right. not played there as well so and what's the difference between field and box lacrosse for people uh, box lacrosse is kind of more more like more like a hockey right you have the five you have the five uh individuals on uh within the confines of a of, we'll say of a hockey ring that's been drained over you'll see with artificial ice and they play and they have a goalie and and and, and that's really that's the box across component there's actually no offsides in, in box across and uh we have a like nine foot kind of radius crease to we'll say protect the goalies but i don't really know how much protection they need because they have all that equipment on mm. <laughs> what the big thing is that, about it is that it differs from the field game like you say the field game uh for the I know for the women, I, I believe it involves like twelve players, which differs from the men, which involves eleven players, which they actually, which involves like a like three three to four uh, defensive long poles. This thing can be actually up to, um, I believe it's seventy two. The rule uh, the rule on it right now in terms of in terms of its length. said then you have your uh, then you have your transition players. I think the workhorses are really your your middies who run both ends of the the. the uh, We'll say soccer size, football size kind of field, and you have your attackment on your goal scorers, your kind of feeders, and you have your goaltender. Like you say, the the ten, the, 
the ten players who comprise that, like you say, in, in the girls' game. So there's so there's, that's the difference. I guess you go from six players in the box, ten players in the men's field, and I believe it's twelve for the for the women's field lacrosse. And and again, that's something I said that's kind of kind of changed over the years because like going back to uh, I think what we originally talked about when we mentioned Sequoia Diso in the creators' mm-hmm. game, Sequoia Diso, the one who holds up the heavens. Uh, he's our he's our creator, right? And and, and I know in talking to uh, to my dad and some of the people that I know from the community as well, Rotkaniantra, um, they call the games that we play, right? And that's the games have always been a part, a principal part of our way of life. And uh, so, so yeah, you talk about the creator's games, the way Diesel game was played to uh, for his honor, for his joy, for his amusement, and uh, and and that's really where where it comes from because that original game was played between Sequoia Diesel. And his brother. Then, then you have, I think, over the years, you've seen the transformation. I think to, uh, I know the Nishinaabe have their their game that they call Bagataway. It's a smaller kind of stick. Then you have your Seminoles and your Choctaws with their games as well. Then you have kind of two stick games. But then I think uh, what's kind of lost in, in a lot of that, and it's like you you look at history in terms of the education system, and you look at kind of look at that and say. All of a sudden, the game is kind of referred to kind of little brother of war. I, I, I've never really seen that as part and parcel. I don't even recall that being shared in any of our Haudenosaunee traditions because, like, I know we're we're Haudenosaunee people. Like you say, we're 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 known as you say uh, the the forerunners. Uh, I say of the, of the great peace. That's our message is all about peace and understanding. And even but the game that we played initially was the settle disputes, the healing game, mm. the medicine game. So I don't really see, even though it's a dispute, like you say, uh, and and uh, different nations to play against one another. Really, it really to me didn't, and that little brother war connotation. I always have, I always had a had a challenge with that in terms of what the game represents because I know I know I've never seen of that when people will say war on the floor. I don't really I don't mm. really hearken that. It's just a brand kind of way of trying to promote the game. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I know other individuals, like I said, I don't know the, all the history of the Nishinaabe game, the Choctaw game, and maybe that's, I don't know. I guess they, I would have to get delve further into that, but in talking to, say, like some of the historians, like does Andre Delmore Jacobs, who, who wrote mm-hmm. a book on, on the games, he's a Cuban Nation faith keeper as well, and mm-hmm. he's been uh, very instrumental in promoting the game. As much as like any other individuals in a lot of our communities, in one way, shape, or form, People and families are connected in one way, shape. They know somebody who has played, and I think that's the beauty of the game is that it's all. It's just it's, it comes right down to it. It's a stick ball game, really, mm-hmm. and it's it's no. It's really the motions of our of our double ball game are the same as the contemporary lacrosse. Like you say, when we play double ball, uh, and uh, it's it's the same. It involves running, it runs passing, it runs, it involves it involves accuracy, and that's that's the magnificent that you see of the of this of this game today and I think that's really why it's kind of taken off in one one way, shape or form. And I think it's and you're gonna see I think a resurgence within our community because um that's the connection point. You think of the of the movie, I'm not sure if you've seen the Grizzlies that this came out. Mm-hmm. The movie The Grizzlies. Yeah, but the message there, the message to me is really important in terms of what that game did yes. up there in the in the beautiful in the beautiful north and and, and how it actually impacted those young individuals, those young minds help them cope and deal with uh, so many things that go on in, in our lives, not only as young people, but as adults as well. Everyone has challenges that they go through and it could be mental health, could be this, could be that, et cetera, but the game really 
spirit of right you say that's really that's what it does I, and i believe everyone has that spirit has that beautiful part of their being that really uh that game actually lifts them up it lifts their minds mm. and allows them to share that beautiful energy that exists within all of us and to me that, that's what resonates that's what you see when these young kids uh, men women young kids who pick up the stick when they're when they're just basically come right out of a crib and can walk and you're <laughs> seeing kids who who start playing with it and that's 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 the part I, I, I truly love about the game. It's just, it just comes fundamentally. It's just a, it's a stick ball game. You have fun. You play with it. You go and grow with it. Yeah, and, and I think the that 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 uh, that element of the little brother of war. And you mentioned it, it was a game that was used for for solving conflicts sometimes and for, sure. for yeah. resolving things um, in a healthy way. And also, um, uh, it was a game, if if I'm not mistaken, that was played for days at a time. Is that? For sure. And Definitely. people, I heard people actually passed away from exhaustion playing this game. Yeah, physical exertion. Yeah, as you say, you're, you're going to get individuals who get hit, and I think that's just part and parcel of the game. Even now, how, how, how had it evolved? I remember hearing from uh, some local individuals, uh, not only within our community, but Aquasusty and others. Like um, some people, even unfortunately, even in this day and age, may get hit by a sudden shock to mm-hmm. get a ball in the chest or something like that. And mm-hmm. Somebody passes away. That's just the risk you run with a very well a competitive sport, right? Mm-hmm. Like say, but even and I think that's even how it's received by by the media. Why well, you know in itself, like I say, what happens? Like I say, we, we kind of run even with the games. Like I say, in terms of risk assessment, like even out here, like there was a big topic about the sport of rugby being pulled from the high school federation. There was a big backlash about mm-hmm. that because of the, a lot of things and even with the cross, right? You, you see that and people think it's a it's very physical. People yes. talk about it being violent. It's not a really. It's not a violent game. I think it's the. And I heard it best from the old Cat Bomber. He said in one of the videos a long time ago. He says, "It's not the game that's violent. It's the people who make it that's violent." Mm. And, and, that, <laughs> and I, thought, I thought that really rang true for for the game for the game as as a whole because uh, it's way down on a list of injuries. If you look at any type of injury, there's more injuries than uh, in, in basketball, football, mm. so many other other volleyball. Then lacrosse is way down on, on the list, about mm-hmm. twenty between twenty five and thirty on the list of uh, competitive sports, and I think it just it just has that it's it, it just has that competitive vibe about it because a lot of people don't understand it. And I always I always kind of laugh right now because I say, well, how hurt can you get with the uh, plastic mold injection stick? You really can't. It just sounds loud. <laughs> yeah. So, Kevin, our, our time's just about wrapping up here. I want to say now uh, for for uh, joining us today. I did. I do want to ask you one thing. You know, you always hear that that uh, lacrosse is referred to as the fastest game on two feet, and um, and I'm just wondering what you think, especially with the resurgence, or or at least with that the 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 huge impact that lacrosse is making in terms of inroads in the sport and around the world. Uh, how soon do you think it might be uh, an Olympic sport? Well, I think the the sport accord, the IOC, I think the the FIL has now changed changed its name. They're actually looking at, I believe, the twenty twenty eight kind of a uh, mm. time frame to be back to be back in the to be back in the Olympics. But I think what I what I've been reading and seeing about the game is going to be modified. I, I'm seeing like a like a smaller kind of playing field, and mm. and I think that's something that they're trying to uniform because I think the challenge with the games is, is that. The, the the sport services are different, right? It's different for the girls and it's different for the for the boys. Is it field across? Is it box across? What's more exciting? That's up for some of the administrators to to really kind of 
figure out. But I think even in the spirit of competition, you look at the North American Indigenous Games, like lacrosse is growing is growing in the communities now with the Thunderbirds coming here to Halifax, Kurt Stires from our community, mm. and all the individuals who are part of the, the wave of excitement coming here. And you're going to see that happening. You're going to see that trickle effect actually grow and spur the spur the game. And so not only within the Indigenous community, the Mi'kmaq communities, but the, the surrounding communities here are really excited about that. Just I look at Saskatoon as a as a venue like that the rush really took off after they moved to Edmonton they basically almost sold out every game but you can't say that even though it's a rising in popularity uh, there's always challenges within within the game but I think the what holds true it's always grassroots it's a simple it's a stickball game it's fun it's exciting and and it's connected to to our way of life and, and it's also connected they say and, and it's uh it's Canada's like you say it's first true national sport but it was actually come from our communities and, and comes from our original well games that was given to us uh, mm-hmm. for for a purpose and that's really what the what the mm-hmm. game is all about and it's gonna and we need support it's gonna it's gonna happen as the game grows we need more coaches officials and administrators but it's just a wonderful showcase and we're happy to have not only the game involved as part of the NAG, but all the other beautiful, wonderful sports that they're going to be part played as part of uh, North American mm-hmm. Indigenous Games 2020. All right. Kevin, yeah, for uh, taking your time to uh, speak with us today. I really appreciate it with you sharing everything about the North American Indigenous Games coming up in 2020 out in Halifax, as well as uh, sharing your knowledge about the game of lacrosse and its connection to Six Nations and the history of, of Six Nations. And, uh, you know, I think we're not done with Six Nations and sports. I think there's one other sport that should come out of Six Nations that we don't hear much about, and that is, of course, of course Snow Snake. I think that's another sport that, that could be uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the Olympic uh, Games at some point in the future. Nobody knows anything about Snow Snake yet. So. No. Yeah, that would be awesome. And I would say, yeah, I want to go for your time and your energy and uh, continuing to uh, promote our beautiful way of life and mm-hmm. the games that we play. Thank you very much, uh, David. Okay. Yeah, well, Kevin, and uh, look forward yeah. to talking with you again soon. Okay. Ona. Yeah. yeah. See you all here. Okay. And that was Kevin Sandy. He's the CEO of the 2020 North American Indigenous Games calling us from Halifax. We're going to take a short pause and we will be right back with our next guest, and that is Gretchen Rode, and she is going to be talking with us about her book, Deep Water Dream. Don't go away. And welcome back to Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. Once again, I want to thank Kevin Sandy for calling in and speaking to us about the North American Indigenous Games and the uh, game of lacrosse. On the line with us now, we have Gretchen Rode. She is a physician as well as an author, she has a book called Deep Water Dream. I'd like to welcome her to the show. Gretchen, welcome. Thank you very much, Jimmy Gretchen. Gretchen, uh, I had the pleasure of reading your book, and I have to say that it's not a, it's not a, a really thick book, but I had to pause a lot going through it to think, pause, take in certain things, uh, think about how it made me feel, think about what it was you were trying to say, think about what it was that you were trying to share with the reader. Um, there was a lot of things. And, and, and I must say that, you know, in, in, in trying to uh, put my, get my head around this, because in, in part, when I first started reading it, I felt very much like you. And what I mean by that is this. I am indigenous, but I did not grow up on reserve. I did explore my indigenous roots at a later stage in my life, and I ended up immersing myself in the community. 
And I spent about 20 years working within the community and getting to know the community. And I thought of you sharing that experience. So I I kind of thought of you as an embedded physician, if that's okay to use the term. Sure. Do you do you do you relate to that? Yes, and especially at the early days, you know, in the seventies, working for Treaty Number Nine, um, going up into you know Big Trout Lake and Sandy Lake, um, those were very important early exposures. And at that time, I I had no sort of idea what was up there. I had no idea that people lived in such poverty um, in in this wealthy province of Ontario. And to be honored to be working for a First Nations group as a non-native person, um, there was a lot of sort of learning curves along the way. Um, That was intensified when I lived um, with the Bear Island community in Lake Tomogamy um, later on, later in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, And that was quite interesting because I had to learn how to haul water and hew wood and have a baby in the small community. And it was definitely the women at Bear Island who taught me how to do that. So that was sort of an outsider looking in, but trying, but also looking in from the inside because I wasn't in the nursing station, I wasn't in the teacherage, I wasn't in the white community um, while I was having that that intense uh, sort of exposure. And I was fortunate to have people like Bisha Wanda or Maycat or Vicki McKenzie Grant, um, really strong First Nations women, to kind of guide me on that path, and that was a real blessing for me. So I have to ask, you said a learning curve and, you know, immersing yourself into that, learning how to haul water, as you pointed out, and and experiencing living in a cabin on an island and and, and those all those experiences. I I have to say that, you know, some someone else would have would have just said, this isn't for me. I'm out of here. Is that not true? Well, especially when, you know, in the book, I talk about my daughter getting frostbite when the mm-hmm. wind stove went out in the night. Yeah. Um, and, you know, coming back from, from giving birth to her in the, in the, in the town, <laughs> coming back by yes. a steel boat in the middle of a rainstorm. And yes. Anything, you know, like you crazy white people, even Indians wouldn't bring their kid home in this kind of weather. Right. So, um, but, you know, my, my ex-husband works in land claims. You know, we were working on a, a important land claim. This was an important kind of uh, mission for the family. It was something that we believed in. So uh, it, it, was a, it was an adventure for a while. And then at a certain point, I did go down on my knees and prayed that we got running water. And we were able to find a house for $26,000 in town. And, um, and I still live there, and we do have running water. So... Um, and it, it was also helpful because not only did it um, give me a sense of what people, I mean, if, if everybody else is living like this, why should I somehow be living in a different way? Um, when I've worked in other countries, in Africa, Asia, Papua New Guinea, I mean, I've been hauling water and uh, living in primitive conditions in many other parts of the world. So this was a really good uh, way for me to, to get oriented to what the world is like for most people in the world. And why did you feel that was important? You know, I mean, it's one thing to do your job, to be a physician, to to supply the need that is necessary for the people. But you took that a whole to a whole new level, if I might say, because, as I say, some people would just say, I, I, I don't need to put up with this. I, you know, this is not what I came here for. Um. 
Well, it was interesting. I was recently in, in Guatemala um, at a Mayan mother newborn and child health project, and all of the women there who were traditional birth attendants talked about how they had a dream that told them this is what they were supposed to do with their life. Mm-hmm. And I sort of was able to say, well, that's interesting, because I had a dream too, and that told me that I was you know, going to work with First Nations people in Canada, and I was going to work in, in the third world as well. So this in, in the white culture, we don't do a lot of dreaming. I mean, we were pretty... Um, <laughs> Uh, my son was just joking about, you know, I'll get my white people to call your white people when First Nations <laughs> groups are getting are organizing things around time. Um, so this was really interesting because I really did dream that that kind of gave me this calling. And um, I sort of reflected on this dreamlike nature with the title Deep Water Dream because both Tamagami and Tamiskaming mean deep water in Ojibwe. Mm-hmm. And in my book, I'm reflecting on my work with First Nations people, but I'm also reflecting on, you know, working in very rural, um, poor communities that are, are non-Indigenous. Yes. Um, yeah. And where I'm seeing the same kind of trauma, I've got, um, you know, non-Native people who have been beaten in foster care and um, sent to to residential schools and sexually assaulted in, in residential schools. So it was interesting to see that trauma... It's particularly difficult um, in indigenous communities because there's the the longer history of the cultural trauma and intergenerational trauma, but um, and also it's sort of concentrated in a, in a smaller group of people. But if you treat people the same way in any culture, you're going to see the same kinds of long-term problems in terms of suicide or um, you know the adolescent crises, the uh, opiate addiction, and I have that in both native and non-native patients. Mm-hmm. And and you mentioned as you as you said you dealt also with other other cultures in the north beside uh, that w- that were not just indigenous the Amish the Mennonites uh, you talked about their relationships that you had and, and how you worked with them and some of the struggles they had in terms of uh, not wanting to participate for instance in the healthcare system and paying mm-hmm. cash and those kind of things which is very interesting and, and, to learn and. Yeah. and I, I found so too, and because I, you know, many of my delivery experiences have been like delivering a baby in a pickup truck or being in a, in the with a water buffalo. So my my work in in my sort of Western medical hospital is quite different than my work in other places. And when the midwives came to my house one day and said, "Oh, you know, this would be a great place for the Amish to give birth in," again I thought, <laughs> "Well, why not? You know, here I've got a house, and they don't um, participate in OHIP. They do a big auction every year in June where they raise." money um, that that goes towards their medical expenses. Um, They will accept the salaried midwives, um, but as soon as they walk into a hospital, it's $1,200 just for walking in there. So this, I found it really interesting, and because most of the cultures that I work in in other countries, people do live, they're subsistence farmers, they live close to the land. Um, Most of the people that I work with around the world are very prayerful. They believe in a great spirit called by whatever whatever culture it is, they'll have different names, but they're people that really believe that they're living with the land and there is a, a spiritual dimension to our life. Mm. And, and I find that very strengthening to be with people who have such a strong faith in the world in spite of the, the craziness of the world and the, the war and the casualties and the corrupt leaders and um, all the things that we're seeing on a regular basis. You know, I think that's part of the, the real charm of your book is that it takes you away from all of that stuff. <laughs> it, it takes you back to a very basic element that you can experience in terms of real life 
living on the land, living within, you know, feeling feeling that spray from the boat hitting your face, as you talked about, or or walking through the path and seeing the roots of the trees coming up underneath your feet and, you know, stepping over them. It, it's those those real moments that, you know, grab me in terms of your perception of what you're experiencing as as you go through things. For instance, another example is, when you were heading to, you were heading onto a call uh, that was, uh, you know, a serious situation that you had to get through. It was in the winter or spring or something, and you you had to come to a halt on a on a road because there was a, a mother bear and her 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 cubs passing, and you you yeah. stopped and and shut off the car and waited for that to happen. And I and I thought that's a, that's an experience that is really important because it says to me that that you you aren't just experiencing we're not just hearing the story about you getting there we're hearing yeah. the story about you taking a moment that happened on your way that 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 affected your life on that trip and and gave yeah. you something else and and I think I'm very lucky to live in northern ontario because you know while I will stop you know there'll be a bear in a bear cub or that particular case, I think it was going to a dying man, and it was a lynx, a mother lynx, mm-hmm. and her, um, a couple of, of her cubs. So to be so blessed to be with nature as we are. Um, and I've had, you know, I've seen a lot of interesting animals in, in Africa. Also, I find it really wonderful to be reminded of just what a miracle it is that we're alive, and we're alive in such um, amazing places. And, and it is tragic. Um, and I think you know, I tried to leaven, I think, some of the tragedy um, by those moments because uh, it's many, many years since I first started to work with Indigenous people and there's still terrible crises with, with suicide and there's terrible crises with opiate addiction. Um, I'm honoured to know May Cat and I'm very excited she's getting an honorary degree um, at Trent in June, but the work that she's done in terms of community-based suboxone is really, really important, but the fact that we're still seeing this, they've just stopped a, a big carfentanil epidemic going up into uh, the west coast of James Bay, um, trying to stop the drug dealers, um, so these are really tragic problems, and uh, they're not going to be fixed tomorrow, and they're not going to be fixed today, and they're not going to be fixed next week. Um, and the the Bear Isle Lag claim still hasn't been solved in spite of my daughter's frostbite. Mm. Um, so I think that's why we have to keep treasuring the moments because that's what we that's what we need to sustain ourselves on what is a long and difficult journey. And and that long and difficult journey that you're referring to being life, of course. But you know, and I think your book. I was trying to figure out what else there was that was that was coming through to me in in a very subtle way. And if and I don't know if you meant to write it this way, but it, you know, there's like this ebb and flow that I got out of it. There's also this sense of there is it's not just about we human beings it's about our mother and the, yeah. i'm referred to our mother the earth in that that yeah. you are referring to the life that goes on around us that is existent within the planet itself that we see that we sometimes miss because we're too busy going on with our lives and you know you, you refer to the medicine wheel and you talk about the the four directions and and you refer to them in the book and and that circle of life of course and we always walk in straight lines. You know, we go from A to B, but we never see that circle completely or, or have the time even to experience it. 
and also, I, again, I had such wonderful Indigenous leaders. So Gary Potts, who, you know, remains a longtime friend when his son had passed away. And then, you know, a bird came and he saw the bird and he mm-hmm. knew that that was his son's spirit, yep. you know, coming to visit him before. Um, and I think that that is something that Native people that I've known have always been very aware of. And, you know, how long the rocks have been here and how long, the you know, the waters <laughs> have been here and how long the air has been here. And just to be mindful that, that we are in, again, in a mysterious, um, mystical universe, and to be reverent about that. Um, and again, I have I get that same sense when I'm in, you know, small villages in in Africa. People are are very very spiritual and living close to the land. And I was really I thought it was wonderful when I was in Guatemala. They have a medicine wheel which I didn't know, and it has the same you know colors and the same sort of sections. And we did a ceremony, a Mayan ceremony. Um, with a fire around them inside a medicine wheel. And I thought, well, that's amazing. Like, when were the Mayans, when were these people together at one time? Like, why Mm -hmm. isn't it amazing that they have the same medicine wheel that I know from Northern Ontario? Mm. Um, So I just, I think there's a lot of magic and mysterious things in the world, and, and they're really worth celebrating. So let's expand on that a little bit. I'm just wondering that from your experience and and what you have learned from your experiences with Indigenous and other non-Indigenous as well as uh, other parts of the world, in terms of what the practices of the limits, as as you mentioned in your book, the limits of modern medicine and the application of medicine and traditional and Indigenous medicine and practices and spirituality, the importance of that, as you see and have seen in in the practices that you've gone through and and you know the life and death situations that you've experienced over time so western medicine definitely has limits um we're around birth and around dying for example um and one of the things when you look at um different cultures in the world very few women want to go to the health center to give birth because the Western Health Center is not going to deliver them in the way that they, they're, they're accustomed to. So most women in the third world want to deliver squatting. In, um, in Guatemala, they're special. They have like a sweat lodge that they do, special sort of um, ceremonies after the birth, special foods. Um, they do a smudging thing as well. Now you go to a modern clinic and they're not going to have those things. Um, there's been a lot of work done to try to bridge cultures in order to make um, better better links between the traditional ways and then the things that Western medicine might have to offer. So um, at one of the book launches I did with Deepwater Dream, we raised money for the Anishinaabe Health Center, mm. which has tried to integrate um, healing systems. And I think that's you know a very important thing. And we know that culture actually strengthens health. And when we look, let's say, at Indigenous people, at what's happened with the damage to health culture and what's happened to health, We've had situations where in a refugee camp, let's say in Sudan, if you put people from the same village together in the refugee camp, they're going to do better than if you mix people all up because people are going to be strengthened by being with their own people, with their own traditions and mm-hmm. their own ways. Um, when I look at uh, palliative care, you know, there's things that medicine can do, but at a certain point it's it's comforting and caring and being around the, the person who's at home and people bringing food to the family. Um, I rem- the first funeral I ever went to was at Bear Island, and then sitting with sitting with the family, doing sort of a vigil with the family. This was something I'd never seen before. Um, everybody sitting around for a couple of days um, and just honoring the family, honoring the person who passed away. Mm-hmm. So I think we we need to be mindful of 
of how important culture is. And particularly, if we look all over the world, Indigenous people have higher rates of death um, of pregnant women. There's higher rates of death of children under, under two and children under five. And one of the reasons is because people are living in communities where they don't feel welcomed by the by the modern healthcare system, so they're going to be um, living and dying in their in their own communities. And at one time, we used to train traditional birth attendants to work within their own, their own culture and follow their own traditions. And then that fell out of fashion because we said it doesn't really improve death rates. But again, I just saw a wonderful project in Guatemala that was training traditional birth attendants to honor the cultures to to do the same ceremonies. And they also learned the safer ways to deliver, and they learned what the warning signs were so the community could take a woman to the health center if if something started to go wrong. So there are ways that we can make important bridges. But again, if I look at um, comparisons of indigenous health um, and non-Indigenous, whether it's in the Americas, if it's in Africa with the, the, the pygmies in Uganda or the San people in Botswana, if you look in Australia with Aboriginal people, if you look in New Zealand with the Maoris, um, you look at tribal minorities in Laos, any of these groups are under, they're, they're dying at higher rates than um, the, the dominant culture around them. Gretchen, our time is up, but I want to thank you for coming on and sharing this, and uh, I'll certainly tell more people. But, you know, the one thing I want to say to you is that um, at the end of your book about the uh, birth, uh, there's a birth where the woman is standing, and I thought that yes. gives a whole new meaning to the Monty, Py- Monty Python line, stand and deliver. So I wanted to <laughs> thank, you, <laughs> thank you very much for being a part of our show today. Okay, thanks so much. Yeah. I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, Aidan Wolf, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Janet Lamb, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech and thanks for listening. This show was brought to you in part by APTN.